Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you speak to our hearts. We ask that you open your word to us. Lord, I ask that you keep me out of your way so you can speak to us. Amen. So, we're in the middle of a series uh, on Psalms. And we have had doxology, we have had Psalms of praise. Joanna brought us a word uh, last week about Psalms of thanksgiving. Um, Clearly, I nipped out to the loo when these were being dished out. (laughs) Came back to discover I had imprecatory Psalms. Now, you know what those are. (laughs) They're up there. Um, So, to imprecate is to call down wrath and vengeance and anger and disaster on your enemies. Don't try that at home. But that's what it is. Now, there are other imprecatory psalms. They're up there. Feel free to read them at your leisure because I'm not going to do that today. Um, What this gives us, what this psalm gives us, is a window into the psalmist's heart. A window into the psalmist's heart. And remember, this is entitled, A Psalm of David. So before you feel too uh, downhearted at the fact that you might find yourself praying this, this is a psalm of God's anointed king. This is David. It ranges from despair to dependence to denunciation to dedication. It's a roller coaster of emotions visceral, vindictive, harsh, painful, pleading. But it's his heart. And above all, This is our title for tonight. He is being real before God. And my plea tonight is that we are encouraged to be real before God. Be real before God. Now, I don't know if you ever watch a program called Who Do You Think You Are? Um, Basically, what happens is they get a celeb and they go back in their family tree and find out where they came from. Now, The problem with doing this with celebrities is, of course, celebrities have image consultants. And there there is a particular persona and a particular image and a particular idea of who they are. So when they find out that their ancestor was some wicked toe-rag of a criminal, it probably doesn't sit very well. Alternatively, it will not surprise you to know, and I hope this isn't a spoiler, Bear Grylls, great-great-great-great-grandfather, was actually Robert the Bruce, which he's thrilled about. (laughs) But it's not always welcome news. And more than one has said in the programme, it's been difficult to face who I really am. That's interesting. Let's look at the psalm. As I said earlier, remember, this is 
King David. And it starts, the first 12 verses. First two, crying out to God. The darkness is encompassing me. I'm being dragged down. I'm losing my foothold. I'm, I'm sinking. I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere to go. He's beyond human help. There's nothing he can do. Verse 4, I'm a victim of wrongful accusation. Jesus uses this, this verse when he's talking to the disciples in John 15 and warns them about what may happen to them. And in fact, this psalm is one of the most heavily quoted psalms in the New Testament, which may surprise you, but you'll see, you'll see why as we go through. He's self-aware. Look at verses 5 and 6. He understands he has sinned. Indeed, he says, I hope that doesn't cause other people to sin. What's he thinking about? Is he thinking about Bathsheba? Is he thinking about Uriah, who he caused to be killed? We don't know. But he then goes on in verse 7 to say that he endures scorn because of the faith he has in God. Now, as Christians, I don't know about you, but, but from time to time, we get stick because we're Christians. But there's an argument to say that if you're not getting a bit of heat, if we're not getting a bit of heat, maybe we should be turning the volume up a bit. Yeah? Because as witnesses for Jesus, we will encounter a degree of persecution. Verse 9, zeal for your house consumes me. This is the verse that's used in John 2, 17. When Jesus goes into the temple and meets with the, the money changers there. It's also used in Romans 15. And by the end, by verses 10 to 12, he's the subject of ridicule because of his beliefs. The problem, of course, is he's lost perspective. You take those 12 verses, and it's an absolute power dive. He can see nothing else. Now, I want to introduce you to uh, my favorite biblical character. My favorite biblical character is Elijah. And Elijah and I got to know each other really, really well when I was at Vicar College. Because for my final Hebrew exam, I had to translate 1 Kings 17 through to 1 Kings 20. So believe me, me and Elijah, we're like that. We know each other well. And I just want to use him as an example for a minute. So the story is, there is a drought in Israel. And God takes Elijah somewhere where he can drink from a brook. But there's no food. So he gets the ravens to bring food and drink to him morning and evening. He then takes him to Zarephath to meet a widow. And she has a young son. And he says to her, would you mind making, getting me a drink and making me a loaf of bread? And she says, I'd love to, mate. No, she doesn't. She, she says, I can't. I have a tiny bit of oil left. I have a tiny bit of flour left. My plan is to make a meal for myself and my son 
and then we will die. And Elijah says, just make, make bread. I promise the oil will never run out and the flour will never run out. And it doesn't. Now that, in my world, is pretty awesome, yeah? That, you know, food multiplication is good. Then the son gets sick and he dies. And the woman says to Elijah, look at what you've brought upon me. My son's dead. And Elijah says, don't worry. And he goes and prays for the boy and the boy is raised to life. He's raised the dead. Incredible stuff going on here. And it kind of comes to a bit of a climax because he runs across King Ahab. Now, there's no, no easy way to describe King Ahab other than he, he probably ranks as one of the worst ever kings. You know, on the king ranking stuff, he's bad. Worse still, his missus, a lady called Jezebel, has the unenviable quality of not only being a name, but having her name turned into an adjective. She was a bad, bad dude, all right? You need to just get this. And she has decided that she's going to completely support the prophets of Baal, of which there are 450, and indeed the Ashtaroths for good measure. So Elijah says, tell you what, not having this, let's see which God's real. Sounds like a plan. He says, what we're going to do, we're going to build two bonfires. In the wood, we're going to cut up a bull, sacrifice it, put the bull on it, and you're going to pray to your God, Baals, and then I'll pray to my God, and let's see which God sets, sets fire to it. So they do all this, and the Baals go, and, and they're getting more and more animated, and they carry on alarmingly, but by evening, nothing's happened. No surprises there. Elijah, on the other hand, gets the locals, and he says, right, my turn now, and by the way, would you mind throwing a bucket of water over the fire before we start? And then do it again, and then do it again. Now, we're in barbecue season. I'm not a great barbecuer, Andrew will tell you this, but, but you know, here's a clue, it doesn't help. Calls down the power of God, and there is this most immense conflagration. Everything goes. And the prophets of Baal are taken to the valley of Jezreel and are executed. Now, slight aside. Last week we celebrated uh, Hannah and Richard and Jasmine being ordained priests in the Church of England. Um, today, it's the 35th anniversary, that's how old I am, 35th anniversary of me becoming a priest in the Church of England. I was nine, but anyway. Um, and I've been blessed by God in seeing some awesome ministry. Seeing people healed, seeing people blessed, seeing the power of the enemy destroyed, seeing people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I tell you what, Elijah's got it on me. I've never seen any of that. 
So it's perhaps no great surprise that when Jezebel says, and I quote, be ever so severe if by this time tomorrow you're not like one of them. Now, you'd have thought, wouldn't you? Elijah's on a roll. This is going, you look, I mean, look at that track record. I'll stop that. My expectation at this point would have been, bring it on, love. <laughs> That's a looser translation of the Hebrew, I've got to tell you. <laughs> but, you know, ready when you are. That's not what happens. He's terrified. He's afraid. He runs away. And we find him sitting underneath a broom tree and he says this, I've had enough love. I just want to die. He says, I've been zealous for the Lord and now I'm the only one left. You see, the problem with this despair, the problem with this, this terrible downward spiral is Elijah's lost perspective. Earlier on in 1 Kings 18, Obadiah, who, by the way, ran the king's household, caught up with him and said, I've hidden a hundred prophets in caves. Shortly afterwards, God says to him, do you not realize there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal? But in the depths of despair, in the depths of despair, it's easy, isn't it, to lose perspective. And Elijah realizes, and he places his dependence on God again. And so the psalmist here, David, moves. He moves from despair to the second D, which, which will appear like, which will appear up there sometime. Um, <laughs> which is dependence. So he's moved from despair, thank you, to dependence. There is just ever such a slight glimmer of hope now. Verse 13 literally translates, it is in the faithfulness of your salvation. And he's moved from this finality of verses 1 to 12 to just a glimmer of hope. Just a glimmer of hope. Rescue me, verse 14, he says. Don't let me drown, verse 15. Answer me, verse 16. Verse 17, don't hide from me. Verse 18, come near to me. The response, however weak, however feeble, is reaching out for that dependence on God. The despair is a cry in the darkness. Here, is the realization that God brings focus. So question, in my daily life, in your daily life, in all the stuff that we do, what, who do we actually depend on? Maybe our abilities, our authority, our intellect, perhaps our theology, our busyness, our status, being in control, being important, being indispensable. At a very early point in 
the ministry that God gave me, that's where I was. I was really good at what I did. It was going really well. Lots of good stuff was happening. I mean, nothing that rippled the wave too much, you understand. One day, somebody came and prayed for me. And he said, I, I've got a word from God for you. I went, oh, yeah, okay. Like you do. And God said, this is not what I called you to do. I can see you. I can see this is a mask. This is not the ministry I called you to. I called you to rely on me, not you. <coughs> well, that woke me up. You see, we can fake it. It's not that difficult. Except the problem is that as we begin to engage in the ministry of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, faking it doesn't work anymore. Because God sees straight through it. We have to be real. He sees straight through it. One thing that led to for me, and, and, and this may or may not be something that you do, but I would encourage it if you don't, is to get one or two, what I call accountability partners. Now, accountability partners are people who really, really love you, but who will tell you the truth, even when you don't want to hear it. And it's very, very helpful. Both Andrea and I haven't. We have separate ones. We're pretty accountable to each other, but we have separate ones. But they will tell you the truth. They will hold you to account. They will tell you if they're seeing a mask or seeing you faking it or whatever. I recommend that if it's not something you do already. So, we've gone from despair to dependence. Now, it completely goes off-piste. Because now, we have total denunciation. Now... Now David's feeling a little more comfortable with being with God. Verse 21 is about putting poison in his food. Now, he says, may their feasts ensnare them. He calls down physical infirmity on them. May their backs be bent. May they be blind. May they be subjected to God's wrath. May they be deserted. Peter quotes this in Acts 1. And then he descends to them being blotted out, losing their salvation. This is a complete diatribe. It's a rant. But that's okay. And it's okay because it's real. We can come before God however we are and give that to him and I've done it I've done this 
you know, police chaplains, some of you. Young cop was shot and killed, two young kiddies. I cried out to God, I was angry. I worked in the part of the world many years ago where there was some political turmoil. So the solution to a particular issue of political turmoil was for the government to move 75 people out of a village and bulldoze the village. The belongings, the possessions, everything destroyed. I was angry. Years ago, one of my closest friends took their own life. I was angry. And I told God I was angry. Jesus got angry. John 2, remember? Zeal for your house consumes me. I have heard the account of Jesus in the temple described as purely metaphorical. Right. See what you think. Purely metaphorical. All right. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others selling tables and exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, drove them all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their temples, and to those who sold doves, he said, get out of here, how dare you turn my father's house into a market. Now, I'm sorry, that's not particularly metaphorical. Jesus was upset. In Luke 13, when he sees the woman bent over infirmity, he's angry at what's caused that. There is a point when he describes the leadership, the hierarchy at the time as whitewashed tombs, brood of vipers. Now, call me picky, that's not going to win friends, is it? Jesus was angry. The point is, it's okay to be angry as long as we remember that we place that at the foot of the cross, we give that to God, and we let him deal with it. We have to believe in his justice and power. It's God's job to deal with that. And so the psalm comes to an end. We've had despair, we've had dependence, we've had this diatribe of denunciation, and now we have dedication. Now, a slightly better translation there is, but as for me. And he recognises he's still wounded, he's still hurt. However, verse 30, but I will... I will praise God. Now, we live in a society where, you know, everything's a choice, isn't it? This is a matter of will. However bad he is, he will praise God. He will worship. And because of that will, because it is so intentional, he begins to speak the truths of the reality of God. 
verses 31 to 33. Truths of God's reality. And he proclaims them, just like we were doing at the beginning of the service, remember? In the worship. Amazing worship set down. We proclaim God. And he now rehearses the promises of God, verses 34 and 35. Heaven and earth will praise and worship. Somebody had a word earlier as we were praying about, about joining in with the worship in heaven. And he ends, verse 36, with this promise of inheritance. And so we see in Psalm 69 the whole heart of this man as he comes before God. So, who do you think you are? Well, unfortunately, we live in a world where there is great store through a whole range of things of telling you who you are and often it's not very good. So I want to share a CV with you. Your CV, actually. Let me tell you who you are. You're disciples of the Lord Jesus. You're members of a chosen priesthood. You are loved by God. You are empowered by his Holy Spirit. Those are the truths. There are plenty of lies. Those are the truths. Those are what's on your CV. That's who you are. So we called to be real before God. Drop the mask, drop the act, drop the range of important stuff, and simply before God, come as we are, but remembering that in the Lord Jesus, we are saved, we are with him, and we ask Jesus through his Holy Spirit to move in power in our lives. Thank you for listening to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.